This morning we're going to talk about eschatology. That is, for those of you who are saying, what in the world is that? That is, we're going to talk about the biblical study of those things that describe the end. This is in anticipation of our detailed study of the book of Revelation that we'll be doing soon. In the next number of weeks, we'll launch into that. But I wanted to do something that's a little uncommon for us um, and for my approach. Normally, I'm taking a book of the Bible and moving sequentially through the passages, just studying it in its context. But I wanted to back away at least for one week and give some context throughout the scripture of what the Bible says about the issues of the end, eschatology. That word eschatology comes from the Greek term eschatos. Eschatos means last or the end. So we're going to kind of begin this study with an overview of what the Bible says and just a little bit of how people have approached the study of last things throughout church history. So we're going to talk about the issues in the Bible related to the final return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So what that means is I am going to disappoint you this morning. That's what I'm going to do. I'm very confident in that because you came with great expectations and I am very confident I'm going to disappoint you and all of your expectations. I don't, I'm not aiming to disappoint you, but I know that I'm going to because Every time we talk about the subject of eschatology and we start a conversation about it, it's kind of like talking about musical convictions. Everybody has them. And as soon as you talk about yours, you've just made someone mad. Or for us around here, the quickest way to start a fight in Kansas City is where's your favorite barbecue? Everybody's got an opinion and everybody's opinion is factually correct, right? Just ask me and we'll, we'll tell you. And that same thing tends to happen when we talk about eschatology. We start talking about the subject and we quickly begin to find there's good Christians that disagree. And so some would say, why even talk about this subject? Why even bring it up? It's so confusing. I was reading through one uh, theologian, Millard Erickson, in his Christian theology book, and, and he says, there's been two popular responses to eschatology in the recent past. One he calls eschatomania. I thought that was a great term. Eschatomania. That is the intensive preoccupation with eschatology. And he even gives the, the illustration of a pastor that he heard who was so given to eschatology that he began preaching through the book of Revelation every Sunday for 19 years. I am not going to do that to you. Yeah. <laughs> you might need it, but we're not going to do it. Or you find that eschatomania takes place where you find people trying to look for every event that's going on in our world and that's presented on the news and we're trying to tag it with some place in the Bible. Where do we find this in biblical prophecy? But beyond eschatomania, there is a second response that Millard Erickson talks about. And he says that's eschatophobia. The fear or the aversion to eschatology, or at least the avoidance of discussing it, he says. 
And that could be because there is a revulsion to eschatomania. We've seen so much of that go on and it's so unclear and it's so unhelpful and it's been proven wrong so many times that people just have a revulsion to talk about it. Or maybe it's just the sheer difficulty of understanding all of the complexities that surround eschatology. Or maybe it is just simply there's a lot of good people on these issues throughout church history and friends that you know and it's really not something we're to divide over. So I just, I have a, an aversion to talk about it and that might be you and I understand it. The problem is, is that I don't think the Bible allows us to avoid the subject of eschatology. I mean, I want you to think through this from the beginning of the Bible to the end. The creation of the world as it's described in the book of Genesis and all of the ensuing corruption that takes place because of Genesis chapter 3 anticipates that the head of the serpent has to be crushed by the heel of the seed that comes from the woman. That actually demands eschatology. It's not finished yet. The covenant that God made with Abraham promised a seed and a nation a nation that would bring the seed, that would bring saving blessing to all the nations of the earth. It demands, even the covenant with Abraham demands eschatology. The nation of Israel was given a primary responsibility to display the image of God through her kings and her community life so that the nations would embrace the one true God. That one nation was given eternal promises, at least those are the terms given to them, eternal promises about a future inheritance tied to a future heart of complete obedience to God, but that nation turned away from God, was driven from their land, attacked and conquered by the nations of the earth. They re even rejected the very seed that came from their nation to bring blessing. And yet the Bible speaks of all kinds of prophetic promises about their restoration. Israel demands a discussion on eschatology. The emergence of what Paul calls the one new man made of both Jew and Gentile. The church who has embraced the ultimate seed of Abraham through which Christ will one day govern all the nations of the earth. But we don't yet see that now. It demands, even the church as we see it today, demands a discussion about eschatology. The whole Bible is pointing us to expect something specific about the end. I mean, the very fact that we would have to remove massive portions of the Bible, significant sections from virtually every book of the 66 books of the Bible, if we weren't going to talk about eschatology, means we have to talk about it. And I recognize that it is required for us to talk about it because it's in the Bible. I also recognize that it is very difficult and I'm not going to minimize that. And Christians have found themselves for a variety of reasons on different interpretations of how things are going to end. Again, Millard Erickson makes this note. Because theology is usually defined and refined in response to challenges and controversies, and the number of major debates over eschatology has been few, that's hard for you to believe, isn't it? But in over 2,000 years of history, it has been few. It has remained relatively undeveloped in comparison to such doctrines as the nature of the sacraments, the person and work of Christ. These later doctrines 
being more central to the Christian faith and experience were extensively treated at an earlier point in church history. And we see that development throughout church history. There was a great degree of specificity given to things like the Trinity and the doctrine of salvation. Those things that are really core to determining what Christianity is all about and and who is and who is not a genuine Christian that yes you will find discussions of the end throughout church church history but those doctrines that are more core to defining the gospel have been developed more thoroughly than you find something like eschatology until about the last 150 to 200 years which has been an explosion of material written and the church giving detailed description and conversation to the subject of eschatology. And we understand that. Good Christians, faithful Christians, can disagree on this issue and still be Christian. Is that hard for you? Is that hard for you to say, well, they're Christians, but they're just not good ones? No, they can be really good Christians, faithful to the Lord, expecting him to return, and yet there are some disagreements and differences. The critical issue is that every legitimate Christian, every genuine believer in Jesus, believes that Jesus is going to return bodily, physically, to the earth to sum up everything that God began in the book of Genesis. So typically speaking... These differences in viewpoints boil down to three major viewpoints. And there's one way to illustrate that. They're all named, basically, after one chapter in the Bible and a discussion and debate on one chapter of the Bible, and that's Revelation chapter 20. So you can turn there if you'd like, just for a moment. And I just want to to skirt through these three major positions. And as I outline each one, some of you are going to say, that one's me. That one's me or this one's me and and you're going to say, I'm not sure that you're fairly representing my position. I'm going to try to do the best I can. But again, like I said, I know I'm going to disappoint some of you. I get it. And you're already nervous. I'm just looking out there. I see there's nerves. Don't be nervous. We, We got this. God's got us here. All right. It's okay. But three different views and it all has to do with the word that's mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20 in the first six verses, and that is the word 1,000, or often referred to as the millennium. The millennium. Look at Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for, and here's the phrase, a thousand years, a millennium. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years, there it is again, were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. The beast and his image were talked about earlier in the book of Revelation. And they had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ, and here's the term again, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the, here it is again, the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for, here it is again, a millennium, a thousand years. Most of the debates about eschatology centered around, or they're at least defined by, three different positions that are trying to wrestle with this idea of what is this millennium, because it's obvious this is recording a time when Christ is ruling, and it seems that he is ruling on the earth. There are resurrections described here. It seems to be something that has to do with the end. So how do you deal with these thousand years? Well, the three views can be summed up this way. The first view we'll talk about is what we call post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. So the post-millennial people see the thousand years as a symbol representing an undefined long period of time. And they get that because the word thousand can be used in a general way to describe a long period of time. That's not an illegitimate way to use that word. Context always determines where you land on that. And so they would suggest that that thousand year time is symbolic of a long period of time. They would see Revelation 20 as, described, as actually describing Jesus reigning on the earth now through the church and that this millennium actually describes the age between Christ and his ultimate, when Christ came the first time and his ultimate second coming and he's actually reigning through the church. And the church was given a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 28. We call it the Great Commission. And the church is called to go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations of the earth. And so the post-millennial viewpoint says the church will do that throughout this long period of time after which Jesus will then return. Now the post-millennials like to call themselves the biblical optimists. And they call themselves the biblical optimists because they say, we believe that the church and the mission of spreading the Great Commission will be successful and that when most of all the nations of the earth have been Christianized, when they've been made disciples of Jesus Christ, it is at that point that Christ himself will return to the earth. So they're preaching and they're advocating the preaching of the gospel and there's an expectation the gospel will be so successful that the nations actually come under the rule of Christ and even the Bible. Now, to make that system work, and I know it is a complicated thing to think through, but to make that system work, 
They take many of the passages in the Bible that a number of Christians would assume refer to the second coming of Christ, like Matthew chapters 24 and 25, or what we studied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They would say those, <clears throat> those passages are not actually describing the ultimate return of Jesus to the earth. They're actually describing a coming of Christ in the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. That's when Titus, the Roman general who eventually becomes Caesar, he comes into Jerusalem and because of the fierce fighting of the Jews as the Romans got close to the Temple Mount, Titus understood he had to completely destroy the temple. And Jesus did predict that not one stone would be left upon another on that Temple Mount. And they would say the coming of Christ in the clouds is the coming of Christ not to return to the earth to rule, but to bring judgment on the Jewish nation. And so most of those passages are dealing with that. And they need to say that because they see as successful the gospel work and they would see that Christ returns once we have completed the work of discipling the nation. So there's not much opposition to Christ. The problem is when you read some of those passages like Matthew 24 and 25 or 2 Thessalonians 2, there seems to be a lot of opposition to Christ. So they relegate that to the period in the first century surrounding the destruction of the Jewish temple. Much of discerning post-millennialism requires you to know a lot about extra biblical resources like Josephus where he tries to give historical details and you've got to then cause the biblical text then to be correlated with what we read in extra biblical resources in history. Postmillennialists basically suggest that most of the book of Revelation is a description of events that occurred up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. They're not things that we're to expect in the future. They're not things that are going on right now. These are things that happened primarily back in history in the first century describing the time just before the destruction of the temple. Some of the implications of post-millennialism include some Christians who want to then to disciple the nations and bring them under the rule of the Bible. They want to take some of the biblical laws, even the Old Testament, this is not all post-millennials, but some want to take Christian nations and make them into Christian nations and that is to apply even some of the Old Testament law code to civil law code in countries so that it brings them under the control of the scriptures and they're under the control of God and they work hard to try to bring that kind of approach to government. I recently read one church planter who became post-millennial because he believes so much in the success of the gospel he was trying to plant a church in Los Angeles and it was very difficult, as you can imagine. Los Angeles is not a place known for its conservative values or morality that looks like the Bible. So he's trying to plant a church in a place that's morally speaking, biblically speaking, quite opposite to what you find in the Bible. And he found it difficult and he found his members were having to give up a lot in terms of finances and really sacrificing themselves for the cause of this church. And that did not fit his positive, optimistic view of post-millennialism. So he came to the conclusion, I need to stop planting a church in Los Angeles and I need to move to another part of the country where I can show the success of the gospel easier because it's just not time for Los Angeles to come to Christ. And I thought, I'm not sure that's a kind of approach to church planting we need to take. 
where we're telling people you don't need to give up anything, you don't need to sacrifice, that's not what the gospel calls us to do. It's much more successful and prosperous and we can't show that if we're not experiencing prosperity. Now again, there's a lot of post-millennialists who would say, that's not me, but that is an implication that came from that kind of theology that moved someone just very recently to make a decision like that. Some forms of post-millennialism are driving us to pursue the ideals of the post-millennial mindsets of some of the early colonial settlers in America. You might not realize this, but some of those early colonial settlers believed that they were going to create a Christian nation that would eventually evangelize the rest of the nations of the earth and bring Christ back to the earth. It was a post-millennial mindset. I think all the views agree that the earth is going to be transformed all the nations of the earth are eventually going to live under the rule of Christ, the post-millennialists simply think it's going to be done before Jesus returns. So he comes after this long period of time where the church is working, and they would say the millennium is where the church is working to reform the culture. That's post-millennialism in general. A second viewpoint is what we call amillennialism. Amillennialism takes what in Greek language is called the alpha privative. It puts the letter A or alpha at the beginning of the word to negate something. This is the viewpoint that there is no future millennium to expect. Amillennialism is another view that understands the reign of Christ for a thousand years in Revelation 20 to be a symbol for a long period of time that reflects the time from Christ's first coming to his actual return to the earth. Now the difference between the amillennialist and the postmillennialist is that the postmillennialist thinks the earth is going to get better, the amillennialist does not. The amillennialist believes that Moral decay will take place. The nations will rise in opposition to Christ and Christ, when he comes back, will overcome all of that opposition and he will establish the new heavens and the new earth and eradicate sin and bring in eternity. I think amillennialism, for most of its proponents, describe themselves as being a much simpler viewpoint. At least that's how they self-describe. It's, it's much simpler. The millennium is when the church is at work, things get bad, Christ returns, makes it all better, it's done. That's simple, isn't it? Until you read their multi-hundred page volumes trying to describe all of that, which every, every viewpoint does. The challenge is trying to look into specific texts of scripture and wrestle then with what it's saying. So in the attempt oftentimes to make it a more simple approach, what you typically find among amillennialists, and here I know some of you are getting very nervous, is that to make it more simple, you look at something like the book of Revelation and it's interpreted not in terms of a sequence of events that are going to unfold in the future, but general principles, spiritual principles that are at work and at play presently generalized principles in the battle between good and bad, evil and righteousness. And there's general descriptions in symbolic form of just generalized struggle between good and evil. So that makes it much more simple. 
It takes the details of something like the book of Revelation and summarizes it and sees it more in a symbolic, generalized way, not in a sequence of events. In fact, they would look at something like the book of Revelation and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls as really more like a threefold circulating description of general spiritual truths of struggle that exists with the church and the world just before Christ returns. That's a typical approach to amillennialism. The third view is what is known as premillennialism. And some of you are asking, did you put this as the third one because it's your view? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm just going to tip my hand there. I do, I do believe in a premillennial understanding of the scripture. This is the view that Jesus will return to the earth before the thousand-year reign of Christ that's described in Revelation 20. Amillennialism does not see such a reign necessarily. Postmillennialism sees that reign here and now through the church specifically. Premillennialism sees that there is a coming reign of Christ that will last for a thousand years, or some premillennialists would say for a very long period of time, undefined perhaps, a thousand years at the end of which you would then see what's described in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. Now to get there, they see Revelation 19 as the actual return of Jesus to the earth and then they see Revelation as more of a sequence of events, not a generalized description of spiritual terms. There's an actual sequence of events that are taking place. That's how they understand the book of Revelation. They see it more as a narration of what will happen on the earth that will bring Christ back. Now, some premillennialists believe that the church, as we see it now, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and they will descend immediately back to the earth with him to set up the new heavens and the new earth. That's a post-tribulation premillennialists. Some premillennialists believe that the church will be caught up before God brings his wrath to the earth. God will bring his wrath for a particular period of time and then Christ will return. So some of these premillennialists think the church will be caught up, the wrath will come, and then Christ will return. That's a pre-tribulation or a mid-tribulation or a pre-wrath rapture viewpoint. Those are premillennialists. In terms of how the millennium is viewed, post-millennialists and amillennialists believe Jesus returns after a long period of time, the church age, which may be how they understand the millennium to be understood. The premillennialists think it's coming, Christ comes after. In terms of what we, or before, in terms of what we expect to happen on the earth, it's interesting. The amillennialists and the premillennialists agree they see the earth getting worse and it requires the Lord to return. The postmillennialist sees the earth getting better and that brings the Lord back. The effect that that has on the church can be significant. If you believe in a postmillennial idea, then that does lend itself towards a kind of activism 
that is engaging the culture in a way where you're trying to bring the culture under the rule of God's law. The amillennialist, the premillennialist, evangelizes. They're seeking the conversion of the lost, the growth of the church, but understands that the nations will rage. The nations will oppose, and that opposition will grow greater despite the best efforts of the church to evangelize. Now, the reality is that every viewpoint of those three, all of them, call for people to turn to Christ from sin. They all do. So if you hear a post-millennialist say, see, these pre-guys and these amil guys, they don't think the gospel's successful. Well, they do because they see that we're saved. They see the church and it has periods of growth. We pray for revival. I know a lot of amillennialists who are praying for God to bring revival to our country and they want to see the gospel spread. They just read the scripture and see there's a growing op- opposition that will come preceding the Lord's return, as do the premillennialists. But everybody's seeking to bring people to Christ. They all believe that the gospel is effective. They all believe that Christ is going to physically return. They just struggle with some of the details of how that's reflected. And I think that's why eschatology is so disappointing to so many people. So many good Christians can be found in every category. And they can. Wonderful Christians, faithful people in every category. You say, well, even these categories are are difficult for me to to grasp. And I think as we walk through the book of Revelation, it will give some clarity to it. I think if you read through and if you think through passages, there's reasons why we went through 1 and 2 Thessalonians to set the stage for some of this. As you walk through and take the Bible for what it is saying there, you're going to be able to make some sense. And the book of Revelation is not going to be a scary book to you. In fact, I think the more you read it and the more you think it through, you're going to find it seems to have a clarity to it. And that clarity is important. John promises that there is blessing that will come to those who read this prophecy. It's not written to be unclear. You don't have to have a special theological decoder ring to understand it. You don't. You can understand. If all you had was your Bible... And you didn't have any second temple rabbinic Judaistic understanding or pre-Genesis pagan views of creation. And you didn't have any post-Christian books after the first, in, in the second, third centuries. If you didn't have all that, all you had was your Bible. And you were a real careful student of the Bible. You will understand the book of Revelation. You do not need to fear it. But I know that some are going to say, is this really important then? That we land on a millennial position. Well, I do land in the premillennial camp. I don't mind saying that. And I, I don't hate postmillennialists. I love them. They're my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I, I, don't, I don't hate an amillennialist. They're my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we do have energetic, intramural discussions Aggressive fellowship, right? Christians don't fight. We have aggressive fellowship. And we can, we can think through and wrestle over different understandings of the text. What we're all going to have to watch out for are the implications and how we allow those 
viewpoints to drive us in our expectation of the Lord's return and how it impacts us in our daily living because eschatology is very, very practical. And that's really what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. How practical is it? Why is it so important? One theologian said this, a Christian's eschatology does not consist in his prophecy charts, but in his funeral service. At a funeral, the church is perhaps at its most theological. Our crying reminds us that death is not natural, but a horrible cause to be abhorred. Our recitation of Psalm 23 and John 11 reminds us that in Christ, we have already been delivered from the power of death, that history is our story. Our placing the body in a casket reminds us of the metaphor of sleep used often in scripture to convey to us that one who sleeps will also wake. Our burying the body in the earth reminds us that we are only creatures formed from the clay but creatures who will one day be called forth from the dust once again. At a funeral, our hymnody is the most theological, the most resistant to the fads and trends of Christian music. That's because all of Christian theology points to an end, an end where Jesus overcomes the satanic reign of death and restores God's original creation order. Yeah, that's a good way to think about eschatology. It has real practical effect. So the closer that you and I come to life's conclusion, the more important eschatology becomes. But the reality is, it should be driving us well before we think we're at our life's end. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Eschatology should be an important subject for every Christian. Why? I want to suggest just two basic transformational reasons why we should care about eschatology. I'm just going to give you two, two reasons why we should care about it. Let me give you the first one. And under each of these is a host of other things. So just prepare yourself, all right? I'm going to read a lot of Bible verses. You can try to look them up if you want, but I would suggest just, just jot them down so that you can go back, you can think on these and the importance of it as we move along. So the first reason why it's important, eschatology is important because of what it reveals. Because of what it reveals. What does the end reveal? Eschatology is all about the end. What does the end reveal? The most important thing that the end reveals is the most important thing in all of the Bible. And I'm not sure that you've thought about this, carefully and clearly in these ways but we need to what does the end reveal that's more important than anything else in all of scripture it reveals the glory of God it reveals God's glory there is nothing in all the world more important than the glory of God what is his glory well his glory is the display of his radiance it's the display of his worth it describes how valuable God is. It is the display of his supremacy. It shows us how important God is over all things. It is the display of his power. It is the revelation of his majesty. 
It demonstrates his authority over all things and it actually captivates us with its beauty. His glory is what God will not share with any other person. His glory is what makes him different, higher, and more exalted and more incredible than any person, event, or issue, past, present, or future. The glory of God is what makes God uniquely God. This is glory. And it separates him from everyone else. The glory of God is most important to himself. So there should be nothing more important to us. And it is his glory that he will reveal in all of its splendor, in all of its brilliance, in all of the things that happen when he returns. When he comes, his glory is going to actually take our breath away. It will strike fear in the hearts of everyone who has dismissed him. It will drive every knee to the ground every head to the earth. When God comes, his glory is going to cause every heart to marvel and wonder, some in terror and some in a deep, rapturous love and devotion never known before. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne first peter 4 13 to the degree that you share the sufferings of christ keep on rejoicing so that listen to this at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation When Paul described the gospel in Titus chapter 2 verse 13, he said one of the responses to the gospel, Titus 2.13, is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5.1, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's the coming of Christ. You remember what Revelation 22 verse 5 says about the glory of God in the eternal state? There will no longer be, this is unimaginable glory, there will no longer be any night and they will have, they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Dwell on that a minute. What kind of brilliance is that? Even if you take those things as some kind of symbol, it's a symbol of what? The kind of glory that requires 
not even a blazing sun to light the earth. That's how significant the glory of God is. When do we see that kind of glory? In his coming. It's as if with every page of the Bible from Genesis on, you are feeling this drumbeat grow, this expectation grow. Something has, is being restrained, namely the brilliance of God. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it is just released in all of its power and majesty. That is the glory of God that comes when he returns. The Bible begins with the glory of God in creation. We're to bear the image of God. We're to show the glory of God in our own humanity, as it were. Though that was corrupted, we see how the Bible ends, the unmitigated display of God's glory. What's, what's even more is that glory will completely transform us. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible says when he comes, we will actually be transformed by that glory that he reveals and we'll be transformed into a derivative kind of glory. Philippians 3.21, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. When he subjects all things to himself, we are transformed into conformity with the body of his glory. That's amazing to think about. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, transformed. When he reveals his glory, we are completely changed. Second Corinthians three eighteen, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory think about that there is a kind of glory we see now when we see the character of God in us and among us but we're being transformed from one level of that to the most extreme level of that When he comes, his glory will be just and it will be restorative. It will be mind-boggling. Eschatology reveals the glory of God and there's nothing more important than that. Let me give you another element that that the second coming reveals. Eschatology also reveals God's justice and his judgment. When he comes, his glory will be justice. His glory will be judgment for some. Every eye will see him, every person who would not bow to him, every individual who would not humble themselves before him. 
all who have rejected his loving sacrifice will be eternally punished by him when he comes. If you sit here this morning and you have yet to follow him, you should think about the coming of Christ. You remember what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What's revealed when he comes? Judgment. That's not a description of the first century, not with all those eternal final kinds of words. It's not judgment on just one particular Jewish group of people. This is on all the earth. It reveals the justice and the judgment of God. If you're waiting for justice to come, understand, if you're working for justice in our world, and there's everything good about seeking justice in our world, but you need to know justice and judgment happen when he comes. Every wrong will be righted then and only then. Third, eschatology reveals our salvation. I want you to think about this. When will we see who truly knows the Lord? When he comes. Christ's coming actually reveals the genuineness of our salvation. Jesus tells a parable of this in Matthew chapter 13. He had described in Matthew 13, verse 24 to 30, what's called the parable of the tares among the wheat. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, and while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat, and went away. When the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Well, what did Jesus mean by that? I love the Bible because it normally, when it gives you something symbolic, it tells you what the symbol is. You're like, does it really? Yes. That's what you're going to find when you read through Revelation, where there's symbols he's telling you. Hey, guess what? Here's a symbol. He tells them. Verse 36 of Matthew 13, he, he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is, listen to this, when is the harvest? The end of the age. 
and the reapers are angels. So just as tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. What's going to show genuine salvation versus the pretenders? The end, the end, there'll be no doubt. You can pretend now, you can live a false life now, you can live outwardly as a Christian and inwardly you can do your own thing. The end will reveal the genuineness of your salvation. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22? Many will say to me, listen, on that day, that's eschatology, isn't it? On that day. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? All those things seem like they would be the evidence of true salvation. All these supernatural events. And on that day, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never did know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness? We did miracles, we prophesied, we healed lawlessness if it's not knowing Christ genuinely. What, when will that be known? On that day, in the end, shows our salvation. True Christians actually love and long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Back in Hebrews chapter 10, it actually makes this really astounding statement about the coming of the Lord and its effect on us actually Hebrews 9 we'll get to 10 in a moment Hebrews 9 verse 27 listen to this and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes what judgment so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear for a second time That's the second coming, isn't it? What will he appear a second time for? For salvation. You're like, well, I thought he came the first time for salvation. Yes, but that second coming for salvation reveals the genuineness of salvation. For a second time for salvation without reference to sin, and listen to this, to those who eagerly await him. They cannot wait for that day. Christians do not dread the coming of the Lord. They are eager for him to come. In fact, one of the greatest responses to the gospel message is that you long for Jesus to come. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that was the response of the Thessalonians. The report that was going about, out of, about them and their reception of the gospel, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 Other people are telling Paul what kind of reception Paul had with the Thessalonians, how they turned to God from idols, there's repentance, to serve the living and true God, their sanctification, and to wait 
for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come the Thessalonians understood the gospel to mean I turn from my sin to live for God and I also part of the gospel is me living every day as if I'm waiting for him to come That was 2,000 years ago they were living that way. Yes, because that's the heart of a Christian. They can't wait for the Lord to return. Or as Terry read for us, 2 Timothy 4, 8, in the future, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That's eschatology. And not only to me, I love this phrase, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It reveals our salvation. Titus chapter two, verse 11, describes the gospel and salvation. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. The gospel affects us in the here and now, doesn't it? But he goes on, he says, it also makes us look for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Reveals our salvation. Let me give you one more thing that it reveals. It reveals our satisfaction. It reveals our satisfaction. What do I mean by that? What do you put your hope in? What are you living for to satisfy yourself? Listen to Jesus' comments in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed, be weighed down with, listen to this list, dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Where, do, where does worry come from? I'm seeking to be satisfied by something. I'm not sure if I'm going to gain that satisfaction. Drunkenness, trying to satisfy myself and find pleasure in drink. Dissipation, I'm trying to satisfy myself in sin and moral decay. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What? I'm not satisfying myself in all these things. I'm stoking affections for the coming Christ through prayer and avoidance of sin, waiting to be found in him when he returns. When the Lord returns, we're going to see what we were really satisfying ourselves with. We're going to see it. It's what the coming of Christ reveals. Let me give you another transformative reason why eschatology is important. I'll try to go through this quickly. Eschatology is important in how it motivates us, and how it should motivate us. What drives you to be the Christian that you are? What areas of motiv motivation? <clears throat> well, I think eschatology should motivate our worship should motivate our worship. 
That's why we come to church. Do you know that? It's because of eschatology. You're you're messing with me, right? No, really. This is Hebrews 10. Let us consider, verse 24, how to stimulate one one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And what's the last phrase? And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do I come to church? To encourage the saints and I keep doing it all the more as I anticipate the day coming. That's why I come to church. Do you know it's eschatology that causes us to take the Lord's Supper in our worship? You remember Jesus' comment in Matthew 26, 27? When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he had said to them, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Every time we're taking the cup, we are anticipating the return of Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What's the f- final phrase? Until he comes. That's why we take the Lord's table. That's why we pray in worship. Mark 13, 33, take heed, keep on the alert for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Why do you pray? to keep yourself spiritually alert in light of the coming of Jesus. What do we pray? Matthew 6.10, your kingdom what? That's eschatological. Eschatology should not only motivate our worship, but also our service. Our service. Do you know we're to be diligent in our study of the scripture because of eschatology? All right, Awana people, 2 Timothy 2, 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Be ashamed? When would I be ashamed? What's the implication? When he comes, how do I handle the word so I'm not ashamed of how I've handled the truth when he comes? Because he'll show it. Our preaching is to be done in light of the coming of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, which are future, preach the word. I preach as if he will judge what I say when he comes. My service to Christ is to be focused. It's a motive. My service. Even my motives for serving. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Why do you serve? You can tell me why, I can tell you why, but what's going to really reveal why we serve? The day of the Lord. 
Even my passions in ministry keep me focused. What, what, what's my passion that drives me in service? First Thessalonians 2.19. Who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at his coming? Even what we emphasize as a church is not to, listen to this, this is so important for the church today. What we do as a church on the Lord's day has to be done in light of an evaluation that's coming when Jesus returns, not in light of what people want and would please them or attract them. But what is eternal? 1 Corinthians 3, 12. If any man, speaking of a church leader, builds on the foundation of the church, which is Christ, if you build on that with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, things that either last or are destroyed by fire. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he receives a a reward. What we do with the church, if it's eternal, it lasts when the day of Christ comes. If it's just temporary, cultural, dissipates. said I had two reasons. Let me give you a bonus, all right? And I'll finish with this. Bonus reason. I just want to throw this in. I won't say, we've talked about this a lot, but we need to remind ourselves, how does eschatology change us? How does it change us? This is why it's important. It changes us. What does it change? It dispels hopelessness. Do you know that? It dispels hopelessness. You remember the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13? Loved ones had died. People in the church had died. They'd been misinformed about the coming of the Lord. And so they assumed that the people that they loved somehow had missed a critical element of being caught up to meet the Lord. They'd missed it. So they're like, well, what does that mean about their spiritual state? No, you remember that whole... That whole section in verse 13 down to verse 18, you can go read it, 1 Thessalonians 4. You can read it later. You can go get the, the sermon on it we did not that long ago. Sermons, I think. It says, no, you don't need to grieve like those who have no hope. Do you grieve over the death of a loved one as if there's no hope? Christians don't do that. We grieve. We, we do grieve sin makes death sting. But there's not hopelessness. No, that's eschatology kills hopelessness. Eschatology discourages anxiety also. Do you know that? It discourages anxiety. That's the whole idea that we studied through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He, gives, he says, you're not under the day of God's wrath. You're all anxious about, oh, is this the wrath of God on me? He says, it's not the wrath of God. Let me describe to you what's going to happen in the wrath of God. And he lists out the, the apostasy is going to come, the man of lawlessness. He said, look at all your circumstances. Is, that, is, is this that? No. What's the implication? Stop being so anxious then. Eschatology also stimulates godliness. It stimulates godliness. Let me just read to you a portion out of Second Peter chapter 3. 
In verse eight, he says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Why did he have to say that? Because there's all these people saying, you keep saying the Lord's coming and he doesn't come. Don't worry about it. God doesn't feel it like you feel it. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Do you ever think about that? He's not slow. He's patient with you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works shall be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the question. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? If you think he's really coming, what kind of godliness would that breed in you? Breeds the kind of godliness that makes you stable. Remember all the discussion in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the dead? There is a resurrection coming, a resurrection which all the believing dead will be raised up, transformed, live with Christ when he comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom. And Paul says at the end of that chapter, therefore my beloved brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're toil is not in vain in the Lord. How's it not in vain? Because he's coming. He's going to change you. He's going to resurrect you. It's not in vain. I mean, think about all the Christians who have expected the Lord Lord to come since Jesus went to heaven. Would it be easy to look at all that they have done and all that they have suffered and say, what a waste of life. I mean, they died and he's still not here yet. Is that a waste? not in light of eternity. What is 2,000 years going to look like in eternity? Nothing. A breath. To suggest that eschatology is not important is to basically miss the whole Bible. So whatever your position is, If your position does not lead you to long for God's glory, if your eschatological position does not give you confidence that justice will be satisfied when he comes, if your position does not not help you see that the truth of salvation will be revealed when he comes, if your eschatological position does not motivate you to gather with the saints and invest in each other and identify with Christ at the Lord's table and to pray with intense fervency, if your eschatological position does not increase your fervency and your hope and your study of the word to be diligent so that you're found in him and faithful in the way you communicate the truth, if you have an eschatological position that dulls your expectation of the Lord and therefore your godliness, something's wrong with your position. Or at least its impact. But where you see eschatology alive, you find people longing for Christ, loving the coming of Christ, diligent in the word, pursuing godliness, investing in other people, evangelizing the world, because they know the Lord is coming. 
I, I've heard people say, I'm so disappointed that you guys aren't starting a multi-week you know, series on the role of Israel and the Palestinians in biblical prophecy in light of all that's going on. We could do that and there would be some biblical value to do that. But we know, don't we know, God is moving the pieces on the board. Are you anxious about all that stuff? Well, that's, that's bad eschatology. Are you worried about the elections? I'm, go vote, vote well, vote, vote biblically. Actually take your Bible, not just the rhetoric from people, actually take the Bible and let it be that which guides how you vote. Yes, do all of that, but you're worried about it? You're anxious about it? That's bad eschatology. It's not impacting your heart well. You're worried about work. You're worried about all of the deadlines and the pressures of the world and the moral decay. You're worried about that? You're unstable? That's bad eschatology. I don't care what your position is, post, ah, pre. It ought to lead us to live godly lives expecting the Lord to come and anything that's dulling your expectation of Christ needs to be rethought or thought through more carefully and clearly. Let's pray for each other together. Thank you, Father, for our time together and just thinking through the word and what it does tell us about the importance of eschatology. I pray that as we embark in the study of the book of Revelation, that our hearts will be enraptured with love for the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that we, we cannot wait for him to come. And it doesn't matter to us what your timing is or how things are going to work out in the world or what we even experience. We are confident he's coming. And when he comes, we will see him. All things are going to be made new. The struggle with sin will be finished. Love will be perfected. Our fellowship will never be abated by our sinful tendencies again. Nothing will affect our health the tears will all be dried up. Death is banished. That causes us to pray with great expectation like the Apostle John did. Come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This we pray in 